I'm excited about tonight's study. I, I was just so blessed putting this together. And so I just want to challenge you again in the, in the haze sometimes of the holiday season where you're just checking off one event, one place you got to go after another, one thing you got to do after another, to really slow down as we get into the text today and just come with the attitude that says, God, I'm hungry to hear from you. I'm hungry to be blessed by you. And I believe you're going to be so blessed by what God's word has to say to us today. Our study through the life of Joseph ended last week with one heck of a cliffhanger. Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, whose brother still did not recognize him or even know that he was alive, had been testing his brothers to see if they had truly changed, if they had truly repented. Joseph had orchestrated a series of events to frame the youngest brother, Benjamin, with the theft of royal property specifically Joseph's silver cup. And this was a disaster for the other brothers, for you see, Benjamin was their father's favorite son, the only surviving son, or so they thought, of Rachel, their father's favorite wife. And if they failed to return home with Benjamin, they knew their old father would undoubtedly die from grief at the news of the loss of Benjamin. Joseph put them to the ultimate test, telling them that he only needed to imprison and enslave the guilty party, Benjamin. The rest of them were free to go home. And so the question was, would they sacrifice Benjamin in order to save themselves? Incredibly, gloriously, their changed hearts were revealed as Judah begged Joseph to let Benjamin go and instead imprison him as a slave. And it's in this unbelievably tense moment that we pick our story up in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. It says, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So Joseph clears the room, all the servants, everyone else leaves. It's just him and his brothers. So no one stood with him while, and then underline this, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph is, he's overcome with emotion, again, because he loves his brothers so much and he has longed for this moment of restoration and reunification for so long, just as Jesus, who is pictured by Joseph, loves and longs to be reunited with his people, the Jews, who are pictured by Joseph's 10 half-brothers. And in this moment of revelation, there's not a hint of bitterness or anger in Joseph, just as there will not be a hint of bitterness or anger in Jesus. We just read, no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Jesus' relationship with the Jews is his business. The church will not be there over the shoulder of Jesus, judgmentally shaking their heads while Jesus reveals himself to the Jews at the end of the great tribulation. His relationship with the Jews is its own thing and it's his business. He has promises that he has made to them and he will fulfill them. The church and the Jews have different roles and different destinies on the earth and in eternity. And if you wanna get into the details on that, listen to our Revelation series on the website where we do just that. And as we'll discover in a minute, 
the brothers do not move at this moment. They are frozen with fear. And scholars tell us that in all likelihood, Joseph has begun to speak to them in Hebrew at this time. And so can you imagine that their shock when Hebrew, their language, the language of the people of God, of Yahweh, starts coming out of the mouth of the ruler of of Egypt. Verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for, underline, they were dismayed in his presence. They were dismayed in his presence. You think? When we reach chapter 50, we'll find out (coughs) that they think the reason Joseph is asking about his father is because if their father is dead, then he plans to go ahead and kill all of them. But if his father's still alive, he doesn't want to kill all of them because the news of that is probably going to make his old frail father die. So they think he's saying, is dad still alive or do I have to wait and kill you later? That's what they think is going on. Remember, they don't know Joseph. They don't know him. They don't know how he's processed what they did to him those 22 years ago. They don't know that he forgave them a long time ago and is just happy to be with them again. They're assuming that Joseph is probably harboring the same type of feelings they would be harboring if someone had done to them what they did to him. But Joseph isn't like them, just as Jesus isn't like us. We talked about it in our previous study. Jesus is quite simply other. His grace and his mercy cannot be compared to anything that's found in us. He is other. Verse four, and Joseph said to his brothers, please, and then underline, come near to me. So they came near. And this is not because they weren't terrified. They came near because they were terrified and they were gonna do whatever this guy said in this moment. He could have said, do the hokey pokey and they would have done that as well. But he says, come near, and so they come near. Then he said, and then underline this sentence, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. He says, let's get it all out in the open. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. And then keep underlining all of verse five here. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. My goodness, the prophetic insights here are so vivid. When, when Jesus reveals himself to the Jews at the end of the great tribulation, they too will be terrified. They'll be terrified. And Jesus will say to them, I'm Jesus, your brother, whom you rejected and crucified. And hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Zechariah wrote about this future moment and he prophesied these future words from Jesus. It's on your outline. Jesus says prophetically, and I will pour on the house of David, that's the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And in the midst of this grieving, Jesus will say to them, do not Be grieved or angry with yourselves because of what you did, for my Father sent me to you to preserve life. To preserve your lives? It's not what he'll say, to preserve life. Life for the Jews, but also life for you 
and I and anyone who's willing to put their faith in Jesus and receive him as Lord. Verse six, Joseph keeps speaking to his brothers and he says, for these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And, and then underline this, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Again, the prophetic implications and details here are incredible. Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The literal translation of the word posterity there is the word remnant. It's the word remnant. Joseph, the picture of Jesus, tells his brothers, a picture of the Jewish people, God sent me before you to preserve a remnant for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. We've talked about this many times. From the time Jesus returned to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry, he has preserved a remnant of Jews throughout history. Ethnic Jews who became believers, who became Christians. The first generation of the remnant was made up of people like the apostles, but ever since then, no matter what's happened in history, the Lord has always kept a small group, a remnant of ethnic Jews for himself. <clears throat> and indeed, his plan is to save them by a great deliverance, preserving the remnant through the great tribulation and dramatically rescuing them from Antichrist and their enemies when he comes to reveal himself to them toward the end of the great tribulation. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Romans 9 and quoted the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It's on your outlines. He wrote, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, and then underline this, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. In other words, when the Lord starts his work on the earth during the great tribulation, things are gonna happen fast, three and a half years to be exact. Paul goes on and says, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, which just means the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, underline left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. If God hadn't acted throughout history to preserve this Jewish remnant, there are many times when the Jews would have simply been wiped out. The Holocaust of World War II and the Six Day War of 1967 being some of the most recent examples. Verse eight, so now, underline this, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. There are sermons I could preach on just this one part of this one verse. You could spend a week easily meditating on these words of Joseph. He looks at these brothers who have wronged him to a degree that goes far beyond anything that has been done to most of us. I know some of us have been through some incredible trauma, but I feel like I'm on solid ground when I say that most of us have never had anything as bad happen as had the people in our lives who are supposed to love us the most plot together to murder us and then settle for just selling us into literal slavery in a foreign country. Most of us, I feel confident saying this, haven't had something that bad happen to us during our lives. So Joseph looks at, he looks at these brothers who have done this to him, and I want you to really let his perspective sink into the depths of your heart and your mind. He says to them, it was not you who sent me here, 
but God. He says, yes, you did all that to me, but even through all that heartache and pain and terror and abuse and trauma, God was doing something in my life and he was doing something good. You see, Joseph lived his life focused on what God was doing in him rather than what people were doing to him. Can I say that again and can you write that down? This is the whole thing today. If you get one thing, let it be this. Joseph lived his life focused on what God was doing in him rather than what people were doing to him. This point is so massive, it affects your life and mine so deeply. I'm begging you, do not miss this. Do not sit in your chair right now and start thinking about someone who needs to hear this or someone that you think this really applies to. I'm talking to you. The word of God is talking to you about you. If you live your life focused on what people do to you or what people have done to you, you will be filled with bitterness. And that bitterness will ruin your present, it will ruin your future, it will ruin your relationships, it will make you miserable from the inside out. But if you live your life focused on what God is doing in you, if you'll actually believe that Romans 8.28 is true and God really is causing all things to work together for good in your life, if you'll recognize that God's deepest and greatest work in our lives almost always comes at the expense of great pain, you'll realize that even those who wronged you have been made by God simply tools to be used by him to grow you to become more like Jesus. And when you realize that, you'll find yourself freed from bitterness. If Joseph had lived his life focused on what people had done to him, he would have been a slave who was always angry, had a chip on his shoulder, always bitter. He never would have thrived. He never would have been promoted. In prison, he wouldn't have interpreted the dreams of the, the baker and the butler because he wouldn't have cared about anybody else. He'd be so focused on himself, so busy focusing on the wrongs that had been done to him and the hurt that he was feeling. You and I get to choose the narrative of our past. Here's what I mean. This is another huge point. Here's what I mean by that. We get to choose the lens through which we perceive our past. Joseph saw his past through the lens of what God was doing in his life. You and I can look back at the times we've been wronged and see it through the lens of, oh, oh, that was that season of my life when so-and-so did those awful things to me. That was the season of my life when so-and-so was taking advantage of me, being a jerk to me, ruining everything for me. Or, or we can look back on that same season of life through the lens of that's the season of my life when God broke me and made me realize that I was looking for things in a person that I can only truly get from God. That was a season that God used to take my relationship with him to a whole nother level, my dependence on him to a whole nother level. And so the question is, which lens do you view your past through? Which lens are you viewing your current difficulties through? 
Are you seeing the current struggles you're going through, the current difficulties you're having with people? Are you seeing those as, as things people are doing to you? Or are you viewing them through the lens of what God is doing in you? Well, moving on, Joseph says to his brothers of the Lord, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh. That's just another way of saying Pharaoh looks up to me and he takes the advice that I offer him. And Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry, do not delay. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Goshen was the best, most fertile land in Egypt. We believe that it was located in the eastern part of the, the famous Nile Delta. And, and then underline this, you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There, underline, I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. That's why we think you speak in Hebrew. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but there, there's still times when within me rises these emotions of, of feeling ashamed or embarrassed or, or fearful of coming to Jesus. And I have to remind myself, this is who Jesus is. This type of relationship, despite all the wrongs I've done, all the times that I've failed the Lord and continue to fail him, this type of relationship with Jesus here, is what his blood and the cross has made possible. Can I remind you again that he's not a God who's angry at you? He knows everything and he still loves you. He knew everything when he died for you. Every sin you'd ever commit and all the ones you're still going to commit. He knew every sin you'd commit even after you found out that he died for you. He knew all those before he died for you. You think that any of your sinful actions or mine can surprise God? They can't. They surprise us, but they don't surprise him because he's all-knowing, and yet he loves you. He loves me, and that's why we love him. Would you write this down? Like Joseph with his half-brothers, Jesus is fully aware of my sins, and yet he loves me. He loves me. He's fully aware of my sins, and yet he loves me. So we'll move on to verse 16. It says, now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Why did it please Pharaoh and his servants? Because Joseph was beloved by the Egyptians. He was viewed as their savior because of the way he had guided the country through this catastrophic famine and enriched and empowered Egypt beyond her wildest dreams. Verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. That just means you'll eat the best that we have to eat. 
Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts, take some U-Haul vans out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and mother and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. As it will be when Jesus returns to the earth, things just keep getting better and better here. Pharaoh gives them a command and his command is that they bring all their families down to Egypt and come and live in the best part of the land. And do this quickly. Don't even worry about bringing all your stuff. We'll just give you the best of everything that we have when you get here. And so just to take a step back for a moment, let's just think about what an incredible turnaround of events this was from the brothers' perspective. Just a few hours earlier, things were looking completely hopeless. They were thinking they were going to have to return home and give their dad the news that would kill him in grief on the spot. It looked like they would be sent back and perhaps they would starve to death. Perhaps Benjamin would be left to die in Egypt. And now they're embracing the ruler of the world and he's providing for and blessing them extravagantly. And this turnaround has happened in just a couple of hours. It's unbelievable, but it's also exactly what Jesus is going to do for the Jews in the Great Tribulation. It's going to look like everything is completely hopeless and lost and destined for destruction. And Jesus is going to show up and change everything in just a moment. It's going to be incredible. Verse 21, then the sons of Israel, the brothers, did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And we notice there's no bitter reaction from the brothers. I don't have a reason why Joseph does this this time. I think it's just because Benjamin is his boy. Benjamin's his full brother. And I'll suggest to you that perhaps this is telling us that while Jesus loves all of us, Maybe he does have favorites. I personally think he does. I think he does. There's no verse in the Bible that says the Lord doesn't have favorites. So maybe that's the theological implication of the verse. God's like, why are you surprised? I told you in the Joseph typology, he clearly likes Benjamin the best. So yeah, of course I have favorites. Right, Elijah? You know, that sort of thing. So it's good to be loved by the Lord, and we all are, but I I suspect he has some favorites. Verse 23, and he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, now underline this, see that you do not become troubled along the way. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Do you remember what the number ten speaks of in the scriptures? Speaks of the law. Speaks of the law. You can always remember it because of the ten commandments. Jacob had sent his ten sons to Egypt to try to buy grain. A picture of how the law has us try to buy salvation by earning it with our actions. But Joseph refuses the money, you'll remember, and and gives them the grain as a gift because you can't buy salvation. Nobody can be good enough on their own. Nobody can pay the price. Salvation's a gift of God. And to emphasize that, Joseph now sends back 10 male and female donkeys loaded with blessings. Another picture that God's gift of salvation, the gospel, is far greater than the law. Salvation and the blessings of God are not earned, they're given by the Lord as gifts. Now I had you underline Joseph's words to his brothers, see that you do not become troubled along the way. It was a serious journey back to Hebron. 
And they would have had time to, to think and to stew in perhaps some doubts and second thoughts that would come to the surface. Perhaps they would start to think, was that really real? That seems too good to be true. Maybe, maybe it was too good to be true. Maybe we're being set up and deceived here. Maybe this, yeah, maybe he's playing all of us and then he's gonna publicly execute all of us and he's just getting our hopes up to stick it to us. And Jesus said something similar to his disciples, knowing that they would face their own doubts after he left and returned to heaven. And he told them in John 14, these words, and it's the same thing that Jesus says to you and I. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus said, and you'll hear the similarity right here. It's on your outlines. You can underline this first bit. Jesus' version was, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The assurance that Joseph gave his brothers is the same as Jesus gives to us, that we will be together, we'll be with him soon in the place that he's prepared for us, where he will provide for us and fellowship with us forever. Therefore, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how difficult the journey gets, the Lord would say, let not your heart be troubled. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Verse 25, then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father and they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, underline this, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. The spirit of Jacob their father revived. I love this because even when Jacob did not yet believe, even when his faith was faltering, when it seemed too good to be true, even when he was in that place, guess what? The carts, the wagons loaded with blessings were still making their way toward him. They were still on their way toward him because that's how the Lord is. What does the word say? If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even in those moments when we don't deserve it, when our faith isn't where it should be, he's still being good to us. He's still faithful. He's still working to bless us. Always, always. And I love this too. Jacob's spirit comes to life as he begins to believe that Joseph is alive. Remember the typology. Joseph is a type of Jesus. As he begins to believe that Joseph is alive, his spirit comes to life. And then in the very next verse, notice that it changes from calling him Jacob to calling him what? Israel, Israel. It says, then Israel said, underline this, I love these words, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. In the moment when the Jewish people put their faith in Jesus again, seeing that he is alive, they will resume their identity as God's chosen people. 
And don't you love the words of Jacob? He says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. No matter what you or I are going through, no matter what's happening in the world, we can find joy and peace when we remember that we can say, it is enough. Jesus is still alive. He's still alive. He's still on the throne. His purposes are still being accomplished. He still saved me. There's still a place in heaven that he's prepared for me. His spirit is still with me. It is enough. Jesus is still alive. We'll keep going straight into chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the Lord, the God of his father, Isaac. Both Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac, had worshiped the Lord at this place named Beersheba. And it's poetic to see Jacob do the same as God continues through him and through Joseph to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham all those years ago. It's also good to see that Jacob has come to the place in his life where he now recognizes the importance of seeking the Lord before taking major life steps. That's what he's doing here. He's on his way to Egypt. He's not entirely sure how this is going to go down, what's going to happen when he gets there, what sort of family issues they might have to work through. So he just stops and takes some time to connect with the Lord, to check in with the Lord, to seek the Lord, which is always well time spent and a a classic sign of Christian maturity. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, why does God say his name twice? Well, it's probably because men don't generally pay attention the first time. You'll notice this pattern throughout scripture, Eli, Eli, David, David, Samuel, Samuel, it goes on and on and on. And so scholars have pointed out that whenever a woman is addressed in Scripture, their name is only mentioned once, Mary. Yes, Lord? Whereas with men, they have to say it twice all the time. And so, you know, I don't feel like this is an attack on us as men. I really feel this is more like a scriptural defense, you know, where we're like, even the Lord recognizes that when he starts speaking to us, we're probably not paying attention. So, so ladies, this could be clearly a divine design and maybe you just need to be like the Lord a little more and recognize that you might have to say our name twice because we're probably not paying attention the first time. And he said, hearing his name two times, he said, oh, oh, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. Now again, just just don't rush through this. Actually stop and think about how odd this is. I'll make you a great nation where? In in Egypt? Not not in the promised land? Pagan Egypt, which is always a picture of what? The world? God would keep his word and do just that. He would make Egypt into a great nation in pagan Egypt, but it would be through even stranger circumstances than that because in the coming decades, A pharaoh would arise who didn't know or care about Joseph's legacy and this pharaoh would enslave the Hebrews. And it's in and through that period of slavery, those hundreds of years in Egypt in slavery, that Israel would become a great nation. It's almost as unbelievable as what happened in the 20th century when the political nation of Israel was reborn after almost 2,000 years of not existing as a result of, of what? the Holocaust. Had there been no Hitler, no World War II, no final solution, there would be no political country of Israel. And here's my point. 
My point is that the Lord's plans for your life and mine, the Lord's plans for this world cannot be derailed by any circumstance or any event. God's will will be done. And we need to make sure that as people of faith, we don't act as though other people and external circumstances are a more powerful force in our life than the will and plans of God, because they're not. God is greater. His will will be done in your life and mine. Believe that as a parent, believe that as a spouse, and believe that as an individual. Would you write this down? Nothing can stop the plans of the Lord. Nothing can stop the plans of the Lord. So the Lord tells Jacob not to fear going down to Egypt because the Lord had told Jacob's father Isaac, you might remember in Genesis 26, he told him not to go down to Egypt. So the Lord tells Jacob specifically, you don't need to fear though, you go ahead and go. The Lord says in verse four, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. The Lord is promising Jacob that he'll be reunited with Joseph and when the time comes, he'll die in peace with Joseph at his side. And when it says, I'll surely bring you up again, God is speaking to Jacob as the collective nation of Israel. He's promising him that as he goes down into Egypt, his people will be brought out of Egypt by the Lord. And indeed they would, but it would take longer than anyone could have imagined. Verse five, then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So the whole extended family moves down to Egypt together. Verse eight, now these were the names of the children of Israel. And then it goes through a lengthy list of names which I will allow you to read and study on your own, on your own time, and it, it only lists the direct descendants of Jacob, but in all likelihood there would have been several hundred or, or over a thousand people in this party that made its way down to Egypt when you include servants, employees, and cousins and all that sort of stuff. And we're gonna pick it up again in verse 26. Verse 26 we read, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. And the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. And just to take a, a quick note, because I'm sure this vexes you greatly, if you're confused that verse 26 mentions 66 and verse 27 says 70, it's really simple. Verse 26 mentions 66 persons and specifically says that number doesn't include Jacob. Verse 27 mentions 70, which is simply adding Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's where the 70 comes from. And so again, I know that issue was deeply troubling to you, and so I hope that I've brought you a semblance of peace by clearing that up. Verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while, a good while. There's not really any words that, that I could give to capture or articulate the intensity 
the emotions that would have come to bear at the moment of this reunion. The best I can do is, is to put it this way if you're a parent. Can you imagine losing a child when they were the age of 17 and then going through the next 22 years mourning that loss only to find yourself 22 years later embracing them alive and well again? I don't know that it gets more emotionally overwhelming than that in this life. I, I don't know that it can. I don't think the fact that, that Joseph is the ruler of the world is on Jacob's mind at all at this moment in time. He's just so overjoyed to be reunited with his son. And we can let it speak to us about the emotion that must have been present when Jesus was reunited with his heavenly father following his death resurrection and ascension. Can, can you imagine what that reunion must have been like in heaven? It must have been incredible the moment Jesus re-enters heaven after his time on the earth. Can't wait to see the tape. Verse 30, and Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. What Jacob means is like, man, I can die in peace right now. I've seen your face again and I know that you're okay. And suddenly, suddenly, the fog lifts from Jacob's perspective and he sees everything clearly. No longer is it, all these things are against me. Now it's, I see what the Lord was doing. I see it all now. Truly, he causes all things to work together for good. Joseph, the rightful heir of the family, is alive and he's reigning over the world. The dreams that Joseph had all those years ago have come to pass. The family has been rescued, restored, and blessed. And I want to encourage you personally to understand in faith that you and I are also destined to have a similar moment of clarity when we arrive in the presence of the Lord. And in a moment, he opens up our understanding to see everything that he was doing across the course of our lives. And we too will marvel in awe and gratitude at the ways he was working that we had no idea about. The good that he was doing when we thought everything was falling apart and he wasn't paying attention. No matter how much we doubt or despair in this life, let me tell you this, we will have that moment with the Lord. Whether you're of great faith or not, you will have that moment with the Lord. But you know what's far better? What's far better is not doubting and despairing in this life, but standing in faith and declaring, Lord, I know that you're doing good. You promise it, and good is all you can do because you are only good. So I'm gonna stand in faith and I'm gonna stand in gratitude now. I look forward to that moment of clarity. But Lord, I'm not going to live my life acting as though that moment isn't going to come. I know it's going to come. And so I'm going to stand in faith now. Why is it better? Because you'll be rewarded in eternity for that kind of faith by Jesus. And the more faith you enter the kingdom of God with, the more the Lord will be able to trust you with as you rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom and into the ages to come. Write this down. The question is never... The question is never, will God be proven faithful? The question is, will I be proven to have faith? Will I be proven to have faith? The faithfulness of God 
is a given. It's not a question. You know, hundreds of years after this, when the Lord was dramatically freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, many of you know the story. When they reached the other side of the Red Sea after God had parted the sea and they watched as the Lord closed it on the Egyptian army that was pursuing them, they praised God. They sung this amazing song. It's recorded in the scriptures. They worshiped God. But how much better would it have been if they had praised God when they were still on the other side of the Red Sea, when the Egyptian army was closing in and everything looked hopeless? Of course they praised God on the other side. What what else are you going to do? He just did a ludicrous miracle in front of your eyes and saved your life. Of course you're going to praise him. But I think what really blesses the Lord is when we're in that place when things look impossible, things look difficult. It looks like there's no way out. And in that place, we begin to praise the Lord in faith because we know that he's going to be faithful. Be a man or woman of faith. Your moment of clarity is coming. So is mine. I can't wait for it. Verse 31, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what's going on here? Because at first it seems counterintuitive. Joseph says to his family, guys, shepherds are despised. They're looked down upon. They're part of the lowest caste in society here in Egypt. So when Pharaoh asks you what you do for a living, be sure to tell him that you're shepherds. Well, why? Because then the Egyptians would leave them alone. They'd leave them alone. If they had jobs that would allow them to be a part of the upper class of Egyptian society, they would have been welcomed into that world. Pharaoh loved Joseph. He would have invited them to all the soirees and get-togethers that were going on, and they would have become immersed in Egyptian culture and Egyptian values, and in all likelihood, they would have compromised their values and beliefs in favor of those of the land of Egypt. They would have been swallowed up by the culture around them. So they settle in Goshen. Goshen means drawing near. God calls his people to live in Egypt, which is always a picture of the world in the Bible. He calls his people to live in the world, but within the world, he calls his people to live in the place of drawing near, drawing near to him, the place of intimacy, relationship with him. Additionally, God calls his people to embrace an identity that will cause them to be looked down upon by the world around them. It's a picture of what Jesus prayed to his heavenly father in John 17 when he was praying for his disciples. Jesus prayed, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus was talking about that central Christian idea for you and I to be in the world, but not of the world. You're living in Egypt, 
but you're living in Goshen. You're living in the world, but you're living in the place of intimate relationship with Jesus. And you're embracing the identity of Christian, an identity that's going to cause you to be looked down upon by the world around you. But that's so important because one of the best things you can do to protect yourself from getting immersed in the culture of the world around you, swept away by the sin of the world around you, is to simply identify yourself clearly as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus to those around you. People should know that you're a believer. The people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you play sports with and hang out with, they should know that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Yeah, it probably will cause you to be looked down upon. It might result in you being excluded from some activities, not invited to certain functions, but it will protect you. It will help keep you in the place of intimacy with the Lord as you live in the land of Egypt, which we all are. So write this down. Being open about your faith in Jesus keeps you from becoming immersed in the culture of the world. Immersed in the culture of the world. And if you don't do a good enough job, you know what the Lord will usually do? He'll just like stick an absolute dagger in your heart. He'll have a non-believer come up to you and say, hey, should you be doing these things? Aren't you a Christian? It's not a whole lot worse when you're a believer than having a non-believer be like, uh, are you supposed to be doing this sort of stuff? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? It's a pretty low point. So it helps protect you. It helps protect you when people know that you're a believer. Let me wrap up by saying this. When you understand that God works in your life through everything that happens to you, when you really understand that you're able to let go of bitterness when people wrong you and when they have wronged you, you don't look back on your past with bitterness. You look back on your past through the lens of what God did in you through the events and circumstances of your life, even the negative ones. But more than that, far above that, is the way your life will be changed, your perspective will be altered, the way you'll view the issue of forgiveness when you realize that the person in the story that you and I are most like is not Joseph. It's not Joseph. We're not the Jesus in the story. We're most like one of the brothers. Because every single one of us has done to Jesus far worse than Joseph's brothers ever did to him. We've all rejected and sinned against the God who made us and has only ever done good for us. And the grace and mercy that he has shown us is infinitely more extravagant and undeserved than the grace and mercy that Joseph shows his brothers. Jesus says to us, don't be mad at yourself about what you've done to me. Don't grieve about it. Rejoice that through me you're saved and you're provided for. We are not most like the hero of the story. We're most like the villains. We're the objects of mercy and grace. We're the ones who should have known wrath. And when you understand that, you'll understand why Jesus was totally justified in telling us that we must forgive those who have wronged us. We must. Not that we should, but we must because we can't be recipients of the radical, undeserved forgiveness of Jesus while refusing to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. So rather than just keeping that general, let me ask you this question pointedly. Uh, 
Who has hurt you the most in your life, the most deeply? And have you forgiven them? Have you forgiven them? If you haven't, I'm not telling you you should. I'm telling you you must. You must forgive them. Not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it just as you do not deserve the forgiveness of Jesus. And yet he gave it to you freely at the greatest cost to himself. If there's one thing you get from our study today, I guess this will be the second thing because I actually said that earlier in the message. The second thing I'd really want you to get from our study today is this. We, we serve a God who just delights in keeping his promises. He delights in keeping his promises. And I, I imagine the Lord in heaven as this incredible story unfolds through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just enjoys being in heaven, knowing what's about to happen. I can't imagine how much the Lord enjoyed watching this unfold as, as Jacob's, as Joseph's brothers think everything's falling apart and the Lord says, oh man, this is gonna be so good. Just wait, just wait. And then it's, I am Joseph. He loves to keep his promises and he loves to keep his promises to you. God might sometimes seem to be silent, but he's never absent. He's never absent. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's never given up on his plans for you. Ever, ever. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for your great love for us. Thank you for forgiving us. Bringing us into your kingdom and your family. And Father, I pray just in the name of Jesus that if there's anyone in this room that needs to forgive someone, that you would just flood them with your grace in a way that releases them from bitterness and empowers them to forgive. Lord, remind us of how much we've been forgiven by you. And Lord, I pray even now that the Comforter, your Holy Spirit, would begin to change the way some of us are, are viewing incidents in our past. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't view anything negative that's happened to us as, as something that was done to us. But the only thing that we would keep a record of is what you did in us through that trauma. The good that you did through what was intended for evil. How you kept your promises and drew us closer to you, Father God. Lord, we can't wait for the moment when you are revealed to us and we get to hear you say, I am Jesus, I am Jesus. Lord, and your word says when we see you, we will be like you. Thank you, Jesus, for not being, for not being mad at us. Thank you for forgiving us and being a God who, who wants to wrap your arms around us and keep us close to you. You're the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're an awesome Lord. And you're a great God. And we love you. And Father, your son is like no one else. He's like no one else. And Lord, we, we want to take some time now just to worship and tell you about how wonderful he is. Not because you don't know, but because every father loves to hear that about their kids. Jesus is a wonder and he is wonderful.
And it's our joy to offer up our lives to serve him each and every day. May we bring you glory, Father, as we glorify your son, Jesus. Would you just allow the, the Holy Spirit to minister to you? If he wants to bring up an area or something from your past, let him do it. Let him minister to you. If he's calling you to forgive, then, then forgive. And thank him that he gives you the power and the strength to do that. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.